intimate friendship with Jesus produces joy that triumphs over our troubles and sorrows. God answers our prayers because Jesus paid for our sins. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you'd open your Bibles to John 16. John 16, we're going to begin at uh, verse 16 and hopefully finish the chapter today. Most of you know we've been in a study of the Gospel of John for some months now, and I want you to know where we are in sequence. John 13 through 17 is known as Jesus' farewell discourse, and it all takes place on Thursday night. Good Friday, of course, is the date of his crucifixion, And all of this dialogue, it's his longest dialogue in all of uh, the Gospels, takes place in one several-hour period. He's really preparing his disciples for his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension back into heaven. And when he tells them he's leaving, they are very nervous, they're very fearful, and so Jesus comforts them. He strengthens them, he encourages them, he tells them that he will send the Holy Spirit to them, that he's going to heaven to prepare a place for them, which is good for us to remember when we're in the middle of hard times, that no matter how difficult your present is, it's not permanent. Because you're not permanent in this life. We're here temporarily. So no matter how good or bad your life is right now, remember, it's temporary. This too shall pass away, but heaven will not. So he's told them that he will never leave them nor forsake them, but he's also told them the world system controlled by Satan is going to hate you, it's going to persecute you, and, but the Holy Spirit, God himself, will come and live with you and guide you and direct you and protect you. So Jesus often compares and contrasts things to make his point, and you'll notice in the last half of chapter 16, his primary contrast is between sorrow and joy, between temporary sorrow and eternal joy. So let's pick up the narrative in chapter 16, verse 16. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, quote, a little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Verse 17, some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father, So where they're saying, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Now, Jesus is telling them what's going to take place, but he's using enigmatic language. He's using figurative language. It's a It's really a bit of a mysterious statement. And so they're talking with each other. They're trying to quiz each other going, did you hear what he just said? I I don't understand what he says. I'm confused. If you've ever been confused by what Jesus said or by what scripture says, you're in extremely good company. When you read the gospels, the disciples are confused virtually 100% of the time. 
You know, when, when, you, when you look at um, paintings of the disciples, whether it's Renaissance paintings or whether it's the old masters, you see these 12 disciples and they look so wise and old and gray and full of wisdom. They were punk kids. Most of them were teenagers in their early 20s. They were significantly younger than our Lord. They didn't know up from down. So when they're confused, you look and you go, okay, I'm feeling in pretty good company because there's many times I'm confused too by what's going on here. So remember after the transfiguration on the mountain and Jesus said, I'm going to rise from the dead. Put yourself in their shoes and they, it says they talk with each other and go, what, what's this rising from the dead business stuff? I've never seen that happen, but how do you rise from the dead? So they were talking with them about e with each other. They didn't talk to Jesus about it. They were a little intimidated, you know, to appear stupid. You know, if you ask a question, you appear stupid for five minutes. If you don't ask a question, you remain stupid for the rest of your life. So ask, ask. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you, right? So more than one time, Jesus tells a parable. And the disciples say, can you explain what you're talking about? I mean, what does this parable mean? So they were confused. And John records this phrase, a little while. Seven times in four verses. A little while this, a little while that. You know, obviously he recorded this phrase as important. Now the Greek word for a little while is mikros, M-I-K-R-O-S. We would say micro, M-I-C-R-O. A micro means small. Brief, very, very uh, quick. So a, as a unit of measure, micro means one millionth. So a microsecond is one millionth of a second. Not much time. However, a little while can seem like forever. Think about a five-year-old whose birthday is next week. Seems like forever. Now, we, we don't have that problem here. For us, the year went by, and it feels like a micro. I just had a birthday. I'm already one year older. How is this possible, right? When you have a migraine, a little while can seem like it's never going to end, right? However, it's important to remember the most important phrase here is not a little while. The most important phrase Jesus said is, quote, you will see me again. That's what the money phrase was. See, the duration of his absence is not nearly as important as the certainty that they will have face-to-face -face contact with him in the future. So when Jesus says, a little while and you're not going to see me any longer, he's talking about his upcoming crucifixion, which is going to occur tomorrow morning. It's now Thursday night. That's going to occur at 9 o'clock in the morning. He's going to be crucified. He was going to be arrested that very night, of course, crucified the next morning and then buried and then the next phrase, he says, and again, a little while, and you will see me. Been a lot of ink spilled on what a little while means in that case. There's actually three different ways of looking at it. First, when Jesus says, and again, a little while, you will see me. The first one was that that promise was going to be filled immediately. In that case, Jesus is referring to his resurrection. I'm, I'm, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise from the dead, and you'll see me again when I am resurrected. Now, they didn't know it was going to be three days. They hadn't put that together yet, but it was three days. That was only days away. And then they would see him for the next 40 days. 
Because remember, after the resurrection, he walked on the earth with them for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. So he said, a little while, you're going to see me again. Death on the cross and resurrection. Secondly, uh, you could interpret this as his promise that they would see him again was going to be filled imminently, but not immediately, which means when he ascended into heaven, the disciples were sorrowful because they said they looked into heaven and they're going, you're leaving, right? But when the Holy Spirit came 10 days after the ascension, they were overjoyed. So in that case, a little while means about 50 days from the time I'm resurrected till the time I go to heaven and the time the Holy Spirit comes, about 50 days. Then when the Spirit comes, he's going to bring my joy. And so a little while means 50 days. Now, the third possibility is that promise was going to be fulfilled at the second coming, in which case it's been a couple thousand years so far and not happened yet because no one knows when Christ is going to come. So that's an unknown period of time. So that really is not micro, you know, briefly. So in light of the context, and he says a little while, Jesus is probably referring, a little while you won't see me, I'm going to die on the cross, a little while you will see me, when the resurrection occurs, you and I are going to have face-to-face fellowship until the ascension. Now, what's going to happen as a result of that crucifixion? Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. And then he gives an illustration. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Here's the principle. An intimate friendship with Jesus produces joy that triumphs over our troubles and sorrows. Let me say that again. An intimate friendship with Jesus produces joy that triumphs over our troubles and sorrows. Now, anytime Jesus says truly, truly in the old KJV, King James Version, it may say verily, verily, amen, amen. It really says, pay attention, this is a new idea. Anytime in your Bible, when you read truly, truly, or verily, verily, it always introduces a new idea. He's not recapitulating. No, he says, this is new. Pay attention. It's scuche, right? He says, you're going to weep and lament and mourn and grieve. It really says, your grief is going to be so extreme, it's going to be audible. You're going to weep out loud. It really has to do with an extraordinary expression of pain and grief and affliction. And then he says, but you're also going to, after that, experience great joy and great rejoicing. It means you're going to be glad. It's going to be great gladness that's going to be expressed outwardly. You might say in our terms, you're going to have a party. I mean, it's really going to be a time of exuberance. So you're going to go from deep sorrow to irrepressible joy. Now, the word joy is used 150 times in the New Testament, more than that, and over 250 times in the Old Testament. Needless to say, God has a lot to say about joy. It's it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. So remember when the prodigal son returned home? You know, he finally figured it out after he was living with the pigs. Sometimes that's when our education occurs. We live with the pigs long enough, and the pain load gets high enough, and then all of a sudden we get insight. 
Well, he comes home, and his father threw a party, and he said, we have to make Mary be glad. In other words, we have to rejoice because my son was dead and is now alive. So the paradox is, Jesus' death was going to create great sorrow for the disciples and great joy for the world. The disciples, since Jesus is gone, he's died, they feel alone, isolated, abandoned, right? The sinful world system controlled by Satan, they're having a party because they figure out they finally killed Jesus, this God-man, and of course, the Jewish religious leader said, we finally got that imposter who claimed to be God in the ground. So during, from the time of Christ's death from 3 p.m. till Sunday morning, I, would, I can't even imagine what's going on in the spirituals, the, the realm of the heavenly places. I imagine the demons and Satan are having a great party, which ended rather suddenly Sunday morning. However, when Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples go from grief unimaginable to joy inexpressible. I mean, it is ecstatic. Anytime they see him, you notice that in Scripture. And Jesus gives us an illustration of grief and sorrow and pain being transformed into joy. And he says, it's like a woman giving birth. He says, her hour has come. It's a metaphor for there's an appointed time for things to occur. And when that appointed time comes, you ain't going to stop it, right? Now, I'm told by reliable authority that childbirth can be painful. <laughs> it's reliable authority. I have a number of women who said, believe me, males, if it was up to you, we'd never have a human race because you'd never put up with the pain. It's probably true. So when, when, when a baby's time has come, Mom's time has come, and there's no stopping that birth, right? When that baby's due, the baby's due. I also say the pain load is so great during childbirth, you should never hold a mom accountable for what she says during that period. (laughs) Extreme pain will put you in an altered state of consciousness. If you've never been in extreme pain, you don't know what an altered state of consciousness is. It is excruciating. So when when we're in extreme pain, what's our very first thought? Anything to stop the pain. I really don't care what it is. The pharmacist said, this is an addictive substance. I don't care. You know, more, more, right? I need to fix this pain. Jesus said the solution was to endure the pain because the pain is going to be transformed, going to be turned into, going to metamorphosize into joy that's going to come out of that pain. So childbirth is a combination of what? Pretty intense suffering while you're in labor, but then joy almost beyond description when you see the result of that labor, which is this child, which is unbelievable. So if the child's not born, you can avoid the pain. But is that what you want? You also miss the joy of having a child Uh, that is precious beyond belief, that will change your life forever. As a matter of fact, I'm reasonably convinced if we understand how much they would change our lives forever, most of us would say, I think we need to think about this. But it will change your life forever. For the better. Parenting is one of the primary ways God uses us, uses to draw us closer to him.
because he shows us we're completely not in control, right? By the way, marriage is another way. You go in and you go, I'm in love. You're in love, but that in love doesn't last forever. Sooner or later, you got to grow up and learn how to serve each other. So God uses all circumstances, parenting, marriage, friendships, whatever it happens to be, to draw us closer to him. So the disciples, they're in pain over his departure, but said, Jesus says, you will see me again, and that seeing me again will change your sorrow into joy. Actually, seeing Jesus face to face, that's the whole point, right? Seeing Jesus face to face and hearing him say, well done, what? Good and faithful servant, right? So the joy the disciples had over Jesus' resurrection was unstoppable even in the face of persecution, even in the face of suffering. No one was going to be able to quench their joy. Psalm 30, David talked about this back in Psalm 30, verses 11. He says, you, God, have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Of course, I look at this and say, well, how come we can't skip the sackcloth? How about just going straight to the joy? You know the truth of it is? If you didn't suffer, you probably wouldn't experience the joy. You, you wouldn't know what it was. It was always joy. I mean, I've talked to people who go, Brad, now that I'm retired, every day is a Saturday. And I said, yeah, but the Saturday doesn't mean what it used to. Because now it's every day, right? It's the change up that makes it valuable. So God transforms previous joy or previous sorrow into present joy. You know, they sorrowed over his crucifixion. But after his resurrection, the Holy Spirit taught them that his suffering on the cross was necessary to pay for sin. So his death, which caused them grief and sorrow, was now something what? We celebrate. We call the execution of the most perfect being in all the universe what? Good Friday. Good Friday. Yes, with perspective that it bought our salvation and eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father forever. Yes, what caused great grief causes great joy on the other side of that. Since Jesus has conquered sin, death, heaven's guaranteed, the Holy Spirit's with the disciples forever and with us. There's no circumstances that should destroy our joy. After his resurrection, Jesus or John records in John 20, 20, it says the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. There's an old song I just came to me just now. I can't remember who it was. Francisco, Don Francisco wrote, He's alive, he's alive. Peter, I'm forgiven, heaven's gates are open wide. Think about Peter's joy when the first time he saw the Lord. Because Jesus appeared to him one to one. It was a private meeting. I can't even imagine the joy that he felt when he knew that the Lord was alive and he was forgiven. The reality is we've all experienced painful things in the past that now we look back on with gratitude because God used that past sorrow to prepare you and to produce your present joy. I'll give you a couple of quick ways to lose your joy. If you want to lose your joy, here's the first way. Very, very, 100% guaranteed. Believe that God is not in control of your circumstances. You'll lose your joy before this afternoon. If God's not in charge of your circumstances, eat, drink, and be merry tomorrow, you die, forget it. There's no joy. Second thing, 
You lose your joy when you try and play God by fixing it without him. Whatever's wrong in your circumstances, God, I got this thing. That will cure your joy because now you're taking his place and you're saying, I'm strong enough to fix my circumstances. How many of you have tried that? I got scar tissue all over my body for trying that, right? Verse 23. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Here's the principle. God answers our prayers because Jesus paid for our sins. God answers our prayers because Jesus paid for our sins. Jesus says, until now you haven't asked for anything in my name. They haven't had to ask the Father for anything. Why? Because Jesus was physically present. If you had a question, just he's right there, just ask Jesus. You didn't have to ask the Father. Jesus is right there. But in that day, after Jesus arose from the dead, ascended into heaven, he wasn't around to ask. He was in heaven. They'd been used to having him physically present on site, you know, for three and a half years. 24-7, they lived with him. Now he says, you're not going to ask me anymore. You're going to ask the Father directly, right? In my name, but you're going to ask the Father. The Holy Spirit's going to come in you, fill you, empower you, and guide you into the truth and teach you what to ask for. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, on Matthew 5, says, ask and what? It will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So this is a promise that says, be persistent in your prayers. It doesn't say ask once. It says keep on asking. That's a present continuous. Don't knock once. Keep on knocking, right? It's a promise. It says when you persistently pray, God will answer. Jesus, God the Son, promises, if you talk to my Father and ask him anything in my name, God will give it to you. And I can hear you say, whoopee, let's try that. Now remember, this is not a blank check. God knows that we often ask for things that do not glorify him, yes? And we often ask for things that are not in our long-term best interest, yes? Most of us should probably build a laundry list of prayers that God did not answer the way we wanted to. As a matter of fact, no can be one of the greatest gifts of love that God ever gives you. Because if you got what you wanted, you will live to regret it. Unless you say, thy will be done, I want your way more than my way. So the, the key is, the condition for answered prayer, Jesus says, is to ask in my name. Ask in my name and I'll answer yes. So what does that mean? It means we come to the Father only on the basis of Christ's atonement for our sins. The only way we can approach God directly and know answers to prayer is based on Christ's finished work. It's based on the fact that Christ has paid the penalty for our sin, opened the way to heaven, reconciled the relationship with the Father. In my name means according to all that Jesus is and does on our behalf. 
A little earlier in John 14, Jesus had made this promise. He says in John 14, 13, whatever you ask, whatever in my name, I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. See, God will always glorify and exalt himself in his Son, Jesus. Anytime you ask God to glorify himself in whatever you're asking, you're going to get a yes if it glorifies him. Because that's his primary objective, is to exalt himself and his son as the creator, Lord of the universe. And when we come in right position with him, we understand that and we, we understand why he does what he does. Praying in Jesus' name means that we come to the Father not based on what we did, based on what Jesus did. Not based on our merits, based on Jesus' merits. So in my name means, Father, I'm coming to you because of what Jesus did on my behalf. Now, if you don't know what to pray for, I've got good news for you. Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who is raised, so what's he doing now? Who is at the right hand of God, who what? Also intercedes for us. Another verse in Romans 8 says, the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings too deep for words because we don't know how to pray. We don't know what to ask for, right? Have you ever been to the point in time you don't just know what to ask for? You know, you know what you'd like, but you're mature enough not to trust your own judgment that much, and you say, Lord, what is, what is best? What do you say? It's good to know that both the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ are interceding on your behalf to the Father. So we pray to the Father, but the Son also prays to the Father. Here's what's great news. When Jesus asks the Father to do something, or when the Holy Spirit asks the Father to do something, they always get yes. Think about it. God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, intercede for you and ask the Father on your behalf. And guess what? The Father always says yes to the Son and to the Spirit. So God the Father, God the Son praying for you should be, or God the Spirit should be great, great, great comfort. It's also great joy. Jesus said, when you ask in my name, I will answer your prayers and you will experience great joy. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will, I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Here's the principle. The Father loves those who love his Son and delights to answer their prayers. The Father loves those who love his Son and delights to answer their prayers. Now Jesus uses this word figurative language. It really means enigmatic, somewhat mysterious, kind of cryptic obscure. It's a pointed statement, but it's kind of veiled. It's a little foggy. It, it brings some light, but there's still an element of mystery or darkness about it. So Jesus often uses figurative language, right? He uses metaphors. He uses similes. He uses word pictures. He says what? I am the light of the world. Oh, he's like light. I am the living water. He's like water. I am the bread of life. I am nourishment like bread. 
I am the door of the sheep, the gate of the sheep. I am the true vine. So he uses these enigmatic statements. Parables are an example of that as well. So Jesus often spoke in figurative language around his disciples in order to conceal what they weren't ready yet to hear. I've often thought about that. If God told you everything he knew about you right now, most of us would be crushed if he told us all the sins. And if he told us everything he loved about us, most of us, our head would be so big he'd have to butter it to get it in the door. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to fit through that door, right? So the Lord tells us what we need to know when we need to know it. See, Jesus is using figurative language to kind of describe some things because a lot of things had not yet happened. The cross hasn't happened. The resurrection hasn't happened. The ascension hasn't happened. The Holy Spirit hasn't happened. So if Jesus, they, they're not capable of understanding what that means at that point in time. The second thing, the disciples had a preconceived idea. The Messiah was going to be a warrior king who ran the world. He was going to conquer Rome. He was going to kill all of Israel's enemies. And they, the disciples, they were going to be cabinet members. Man, they were going to be on congressional committees in Christ's kingdom. And they wouldn't shut the government down, I'm telling you. They were going to be large and in charge. So they didn't want to hear about his suffering and death. Jesus is saying, well, I'm going to suffer and die. And they go, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not Messiah. Messiah is going to rule things. Messiah is not going to die. So Jesus is using veiled statements because they weren't ready to hear. Well, they were ready to hear after the resurrection. He says, an hour is coming. There's going to come a specific time when I'm not going to speak in figurative language. I'm going to speak to you very, very clear and very, very plainly. And of course, that occurs after the resurrection. And he will not use figurative language at that point in time. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit will open their minds to understand what he said. Now, he uses the phrase, in that day. Now, the day he's talking about is when the coming of the Holy Spirit comes. When the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus is in heaven. And Jesus is no longer interceding for, on behalf of the disciples directly because he says, now you can go to the Father directly. You are sons and daughters of God through my finished work on the cross, and you can go into heaven, the throne room of the Father, directly yourselves, because I paved the way and paid the penalty for your sin. You have access. Remember, in the tabernacle, or the temple, there's a holy place, and then there's the holy of holies. The holy of holies is where the ark is. Between those two places was a curtain. The high priest could only go once a year into where the Ark of the Covenant was. And they had to carry blood, which they sprinkled on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, to atone for the sins of the people. Now they tied a rope around the ankle of the high priest, and he wore bells on his garment. And he kept moving in there so they knew he was alive, because it was holy ground. He was allowed to go in there once a year and only once a year with blood to atone. And they put a rope around his ankle because if he was struck dead, they would drag him out because nobody was going in after him because that's where the Lord was. So the Holy of Holies was the meeting place between God and the nation of Israel. And this curtain was four inches thick. It was woven in multiple layers. And it says when Jesus died on the cross at 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon, the curtain was torn from the top 
to the bottom, which says no human hands. God tore the curtain, which is a symbol that now access to the Father is open for everyone who comes in the name of the Son. There are no barriers to holy God if you come through the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a phenomenal word picture. Jesus is saying, you can go directly to the Father as long as you go in my name. So we pray what? Father, I ask you for blah, blah, blah in Jesus' name. Now, it's not a magic formula, by the way. It's basically saying, I'm praying to you. I'm coming to you because of Jesus' work on the cross. You say, Father, I'm coming to you because your son Jesus paid my sin debt and he told me to come. We take that for granted. We take access to the Father in heaven for granted. It is absolutely staggering that we as sinful human beings would be able to come directly into God's presence and speak to him. And Jesus said, the Father loves you because you love me and you believe that I am he. I am God in the flesh. I am the Savior of the world. So if you love Jesus, you're loved by the Father. By the way, if you want a definition of a Christian, it's one who loves Jesus. Christian, Non-Christians don't love Jesus. They're at war with him. Christians love Jesus. And based on that love, they obey him. But love is primary. Love is primary. And it says the Father loves you. Now, we only have one word for love. The Greeks have a number. The Greek word for love we would expect here is agape. Agape means unconditional, sacrificial, uh, supreme sort of love. That's not the word here. The word for love here, the father loves you, is the father phileo. It means family love. It means brotherly love. It means affectionate love. If agape means to love, phileo means to like, deeply like. Jesus is saying, my father not only loves you, he likes you. He's affectionate towards you. He adopted you into his family. And he likes to barbecue with you on Saturdays. He wants to hang out with you. He wants to fellowship with you. He wants to talk with you and you to talk with him. In the Garden of Eden, what did it say? Before sin came in the world, it says, Adam and Eve used to walk in the garden with God in the cool of the day. It says Enoch walked with God. I mean, those are really powerful word pictures that you can say, I can go for a walk in the evening and the Lord's walking with me. The Lord is walking with you anytime you're paying attention because he'll never leave you or forsake you. Most of the time we're on la-la land, right? God the Father likes us because we love his son. Isn't that amazing? Unbelievable. No one's ever liked me like that. So this intimate familiarity with God is completely foreign to Judaism. God was viewed as very powerful, but very distant. I mean, you couldn't go God personally because, I mean, he's perfect, he's holy, and he's unapproachable. And that's true, but Jesus made the way. Many, many religions, including Judaism, they're not alone. Most religions teach that you have to have an intermediary, a human intermediary, to go between you and God. Now, usually that's a priest. A priest is a go-between. Someone who can talk to God on your behalf and talk to you on God's behalf. In Roman Catholicism, that's a human priest. 
But even more importantly, my Catholics friends view Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus, as their primary intercessor. As a matter of fact, Ludwig Ott, a Roman Catholic theologian, writes, quote, The redemptive grace of Christ is conferred on nobody without the actual intercessory cooperation of Mary. Let me read that. The redemptive grace of Christ is conferred on nobody without the actual intercessory cooperation of Mary. Jesus says, I don't need a human intermediary. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, and I have made the way to the Father open. You can come to him 24-7 in my name, and he will listen to you because he likes you. He loves you, but he likes you. He wants to hear from you. I, you know, my metaphor on this is, how often do you like to hear from your kids and grandkids? Isn't it kind of cool when they take the initiative where you actually don't always have to be calling them, and they call you not even collect? I mean, they call you, and they say, I just want to, you know, chat, whatever it happens to be. I mean, you kind of go, whoa, they, they call me. They, they might even like me if they didn't ask for money all the time. I, you know, whatever. You know, we'll use money for friendship, right? I mean, come on. Jesus said, it, well, whoever the author of Hebrews was, we're not sure, but by the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It says you not only can go to the throne room of grace, you're encouraged to, you're commanded to. And the door is open, there is no door. The veil is torn, you can access God 24-7. And he wants to hear from you. He longs to hear from you. Verse 28. Jesus says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, which means, wow, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you by this, we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered, do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each one to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Here's the principle. Jesus, the unique God-man, came from heaven to earth in order to reconcile the broken relationship between sinful man and holy God. That is the mission. Let me say it again. Jesus, the unique God-man, came from heaven to earth in order to reconcile the broken relationship between sinful man and holy God. So Jesus is summarizing his mission from the incarnation to the ascension. He says, I came down from heaven, from my Father, to earth, born as the unique God-man, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, 
physically rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven. I was sent by my Father to earth to pay the sin penalty in order to reconcile God and man. I am the mediator. I am the great high priest. I am the one who came to reconcile your broken relationship with the Father so you can go from being outcasts into being family, adopted into God's family based on my finished work on the cross. And the disciples go, we get it. We get it. We understand that you are God. And Jesus says, kind of, do you now believe? Almost, you're now believing. It's almost a bit of a rebuke because the disciples always overestimated themselves. I mean, they always just over. I mean, Peter said, I'm going to die for you, Jesus. And within hours, he was going to die. They never knew him, ever saw him, right? Peter didn't know himself at all. Someone once said, people are like tea bags. You never know how strong they really are until you put them in hot water. And we smile. And then we have to be honest and say, some of us make pretty weak tea, right? It's always easier to look at somebody else's hot water than it is to be in it yourself. The Lord knew that his disciples had genuine faith, but he also knew it was immature. It was weak. It was untested. He, he knew they were all going to desert him in a matter of an hour or two. But he said, my father will be with me. And that was true until 12 noon on Friday. And then the father abandoned the son and he experienced the wrath of God from 12 to 3 for our sin. And that's why he said from the cross, what? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God. Not my father. That was broken. My God, my God. Why have you what? Forsaken me. The wrath of God on the son on our behalf. Verse 33. These things... I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. You should underline this verse, um, highlight it. Here's the principle. Since Jesus has conquered all things, when we trust him, we will experience courage and peace despite persecution and pressure. Since Jesus has conquered all things, when we trust him, we will experience courage and peace despite persecution and pressure. Now, I want you to know there's two domains talking here. There's in Christ, Jesus is in me, and in the world. There's two domains here. We spiritually live in Christ, we physically live in the world, both at the same time. Jesus had previously said, you are in the world, but you're not of the world, right? We physically live on earth, but our DNA, our spiritual DNA, our citizenship, our home, our identity is where? In Christ in heaven. So we're aliens in a foreign land. And the older you get in Christ, the more this place feels like a planet that you know nothing about. That means you're becoming more and more holy. I talk to people and I go, this world's just going to hell in a handbasket. And they said, yes, Satan's the ruler of this world. Do you know one of the reasons why it feels that way? 
Because you're becoming more like Jesus. And the more like Jesus you become, the holier you become, the more you're sensitive to sin. And the more you see the catastrophic consequences of sin. That's a good sign when you are aware that this is not home. That's the only time you're useful to the king when you understand that your DNA is in heaven. Your citizenship's in heaven. And these domains in Christ and in the world are at war with each other. Now, we belong to Christ. We don't belong to the world. We live in the world, but we don't live like the world. Therefore, this world, right, controlled by Satan, will pressure and persecute those who love Jesus. That's the nature. It's a warfare. We know that. This is not Disneyland. That's Afghanistan. And Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you. He's talking about everything he's been saying for the last four chapters. John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 is coming up. Everything he said in the farewell discourses, he said, I'm telling you this, that you could experience my peace in the middle of the world's persecution, in the middle of the world's trouble. He says, interesting, he says, in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. This refers to your intimate connection with Jesus. You say, well, what, what do you mean in me? Remember two chapters ago, one chapter ago, he gave us a metaphor about the vine and the branches, a grapevine, the source of life, and the branches have life as long as they remain intimately connected in the vine. There's a life-giving unity between the vine and the branches, and therefore the life of the vine flows through the branches and produces fruit. So when he says, in me, he's talking about remain connected with me, remain connected in me. Be as intimate with me as a branch is the vine, and then you will experience that peace. When we remain connected with Christ, we have peace. John 14, 27, two chapters ago, he, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And here's a command, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So he says, I'm going to give you my peace. That's supernatural peace. And it's going to remain with you, and it is not dependent on external circumstances. This peace is a supernatural gift of God. And there's two kinds of God's peace. Peace with God is possible because Jesus Christ paid our sin debt. So we're no longer at war with God. Because of the cross, Jesus has made peace. He's paid our sin debt, and therefore the war is over with the Lord, with God. But the peace of God is a daily subjective experience that's available to you, but it's not automatic. Peace with God is something Jesus did completely, and based on that, we can have peace of God, but that depends on us remaining connected with the Lord Jesus Christ like the vine of the branches. It's really a daily experience of God's supernatural rest and calm, even in the middle of the storms. When your life is falling apart, and if you live long enough, it will, it will, it will. When you rely on what Jesus said in his word, and you trust that more than the circumstances you're in the middle of, you will experience peace. Because fact, God is in control of everything. And two, you believe that. See, some of you have had diagnoses that you would rather not get. Who's in control of that diagnosis? 
Who's in control of your body? Who gives you life? We have loved ones that are foolish, like we used to be, are walking away from the Lord. Is God sovereign over them? He is sovereign over them. At two in the morning when you wake up, does he know where they are, even though you don't know where they are? He knows more than you do because he knows their motives. He knows what's going on inside. We have the peace of God when we believe the sovereignty of God. He is sovereign whether you believe it or not. That's fact. But you don't get peace until you believe it. And that's a choice. He says, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. Now, this is the satanic domain. He's the prince of the power of the air. It's demons, humans, institutions, and all this other stuff. And Jesus said, in the world, you're going to have troubles and trials. They're going to persecute you. And he uses the word tribulation, which means pressure. Pressure, affliction, distressed, pressure cooker. If you want to form a diamond in the earth, it takes 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit temperature plus 725,000 pounds of pressure per square inch. And just FYI, the, the pressure you're feeling now is 14.7 pounds. That's atmospheric pressure. 725,000 pounds, now that's pressure, right? Satan's evil world system will try and squeeze you into its mold, right? Either by lust to tempt you or by rejection or whatever it happens to be. And we should not be surprised by that. Paul, through the Holy Spirit, promised that. No one should be disturbed by these afflictions, for you know that we have been destined for this. We kept telling you in advance this was going to happen. So how does Jesus command us to cope with the world's persecution? He says, take courage, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be filled for. He says, don't let the world control you. Don't let the world system influence you. Take courage literally is a command. You take hold of courage in the same way you take hold of a sword when you're in the middle of combat. You grab it firmly, right? It's a command, it's not a suggestion. Take courage means rely on what God says. Have you ever been in trouble and had some problems and somebody brilliant who's just trying to help you says, ah, just buck up, you know, hang in there, things will get better. First of all, when you get done slapping them, then you, you know, kind of figure it out. They, they want to help, but they don't understand your situation, right? Number two, even more important. They don't have the power to do anything about your circumstances. Now, when Jesus, the Lord of glory, says, take courage, he is speaking as almighty God, and he does have control over your circumstances. So when he says, take courage because I've overcome the world, he's got the authority to say it because he's got the power to control everything in your life, and he loves you beyond comprehension. So why can we be courageous even when persecuted? Jesus says, you take courage because I've overcome the world. I've defeated the enemy. The battle's been won. It's a military conflict, and I have overcome the world, past, present, and future. I've conquered the enemies of your soul, sin, Satan, death. My victory is assured. Your way to heaven has been paved. The Holy Spirit is with you and in you forever. Your salvation is guaranteed you're going to see me face to face soon. Romans 8, 37 says, in all these things, all this tribulation, all this trouble, all this heartbreak, all this sickness, all this war, the divorce, the whatever, 
We overwhelmingly conquer. How? Through him who loved us. And we can conquer the world by trusting in Jesus for salvation. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. That's you. You're born of God. You're a son and a daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. 1 John 4, 4 says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because why? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So we live in two worlds. We belong to Christ, and we live physically in the world. And he says, Jesus says, I command you to take courage because I have overcome the world, and based on the fact that you belong to me, my victory is yours. And you have God the Holy Spirit living in you to enable you to overcome the world. Now, we have to choose who we're going to listen to. Are we going to listen to the world? Or are we going to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I've overcome the world, and I want you to live that by believing what I've said. Okay, let me summarize. We're short on time. First of all, an intimate friendship with Jesus produces joy that triumphs over our troubles and sorrows. It doesn't say you won't have troubles and trials or sorrows or heartbreaks. They're going to keep coming. That's the nature of this life. But you have supernatural joy in the middle of that because of your intimate friendship with Jesus. Number two, God answers our prayers because Jesus forgives our sins. That's how you know you can go to the Father directly because he forgives your sins. Number three, the Father loves those who love his Son and delights to answer their prayers. God the Father loves to answer your prayers in the same way that when your children or grandchildren come to you, it delights you to be able to help them. Amen? Well, think of the Father like that times infinity. Number four, Jesus, the unique God-man, came from heaven to earth in order to reconcile the broken relationship between sinful man and holy God. That was the whole point, and he wants to use you as instruments of reconciliation. And lastly, since Jesus has already conquered all things, when we trust him, we experience peace and courage despite persecution and pressure. I think you have enough to work on for the next week. I know I do. We love you all. I love you all. Thank you for coming. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.